Hello. Welcome to In the Kitchen with Brett Thorne, a food service industry podcast by Restaurant Hospitality. I'm your host, Senior Food and Beverage Editor Brett Thorne, and my guest this week is Jordan Abraham, the beverage director of a restaurant called Gozu in San Francisco, where every dish has a lot or a little of A5 Japanese Wagyu, arguably the top beef on the planet. I recently wrote a story about Wagyu, and I also recently wrote one about tea. You can read both of them at Restaurant Hospitality's website, restaurant-hospitality.com. I mentioned Gozu in both of those stories, thanks to Jordan Abraham, who was good enough to give me insight into his tea making and to introduce me to Gozu's chef and owner, Mark Zimmerman. I thought Jordan was exceptionally cool, so I interviewed him for this podcast, in which he shares his approach to pairing whiskey with food and also discusses the complexities of tea, among other things. It was, of course, a delightful conversation, and I hope you enjoy it, because if you stay tuned, you're about to listen to it now. Here is Jordan Abraham. So you have to pair, you said, wine, sake, tea, and cocktails with... Uh, uh, no, we do, we do wine, sake, tea, and whiskey. So we do oh, an old whiskey okay. pairing. Okay. And that's actually probably the most popular thing that we do is the old whiskey pairing. Really? So yeah. how do you decide how to pair a whiskey with... What, what's your thought? Because all alcohols are kind of, you know... Ex- Experience differently. How they pair with things is different, and whiskey I would think would be quite hard because it it can it's strong. It can overwhelm a lot of a lot of totally. Stuff. Yeah, it's definitely tricky. It's um it's actually a little counterintuitive to what you like think about. Like I've I've been you know I I've been lucky to like I've been like very po- like like before this I was like very f- pairing focused on my last job. Um, it's because we did a lot of pairings and there were you didn't want to mess them up because people were paying a lot of money for it. Um, Are you allowed to say what your last job was? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, the wine director for Atelier Cran from 20, 2018 until 2020. So, um, yeah, and that was, we did a lot of pairings there. And that was, um, you know, we did a lot of really high profile collaborations. And you'd have these chefs come in, and you'd have like, like 15 minutes to try their dishes and find pairings, um, which is stressful, but really good training for <laughs> a place like this that moves fast. Um, so, yeah. And so, it's it's actually like the whiskey specifically is really counterintuitive to what you think about with wine because for the most part with wine and this is my i mean i'm not classically trained i'm, I'm very like kind of self-taught for this on this stuff so the lingo might not be exact but like when i'm doing pairing for wine you know generally speaking you're trying to find things that have reduced oak because it's a pretty it's a you know you can get different degrees of oak and different textures from it, but a lot of times it's a pretty bold flavor and it, it can be dominating. Um, and if you look at whiskey, um, all the flavor, I mean, it's all but, but the vast majority of the flavor is oak. Yeah. Um, and so it's interesting. Like I like to think about textures a lot and whiskeys do have people that don't, maybe don't talk about as much, but just like wine, whiskeys have like different tex- textures. They have softness, they have salinity. They can be kind of angular. They can be kind of plush. They can have technically not sweet, but they can have what I would describe as some sweetness. And so you look at all those things. And then, um, you know, what's nice is with the Japanese whiskeys that we focus on, um, 
that, that goes along. They're a lot, just stylistically, they're usually a little bit more delicate, they're a little bit softer. And so I think it'd be hard to do it anywhere else, but because we have so much Japanese whiskey, it makes sense. Um, and part of it was also like, you know, the, the whiskeys, the Japanese whiskeys, they're, they're expensive. They're, they're, they're a really high price point. And we were kind of like thinking, well, you know, if we're saying these things are so ethereal and have these crazy complex flavors, like they should be able to, you know, we need like, let's prove it. Um, and so, yeah. And so we, you know, beyond the fact that we use a lot of Japanese stuff, we use a lot of, I find myself gravitating towards a lot of things that have like mild peat on them. It's almost like a seasoning for a lot of the dishes. Um, things from the Isla that have like very strong salinity, same idea, it like adds this element that it either adds on top or a lot of times it'll bring out little elements or nuances of the dishes. And then um, we use a lot of, we gravitate toward, toward a lot of unique casks. So we oh, kind of find- kind of casks? Unique casks? Unique cask finishes, oh. yeah. Um, so we kind of find ourselves going, and the menu, the menu changes a lot, like more than anywhere I've ever seen, um, which is fun. Um, so we change the whiskeys a lot to match it. And um, like, I find myself going back and back to a lot of wine cask finishes, a lot of umashu cask finishes. Um, let's see, Pedro Jimenez barrel, depending on how rich the dish is. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, what's, what's nice is because there's Wagyu incorporated into everything, like you do, even though the dishes are super diverse, uh, like there is this thumbprint. And it, even to the point where like a lot of times I'll try something whiskey wise or wine wise, and I'll be like, that doesn't work right now, but I would bet dollars of donuts that it will work for something that they're going to do that I can't even imagine. But like, you can just kind of almost, you know, there's definitely like a thumbprint, I think, to a lot of great restaurants. And, and I see it here. There's like a style that it'll, there's like a stylistic range where there's always this kind of like thumbprint or unique character that you kind of get an idea of like what works and what doesn't work. Makes sense. And so you mentioned peat. Do they have peat in Japan or do they have a different kind of smoky, smoky elements? Yeah. So uh, I preface anything I say about it, about Japan is like, it, it can be a little bit of a black box. There's, they're, they're a little bit more secretive than maybe like Scotland. Um, okay. That's kind of changing a little bit, but um, I have heard that there are some peat deposits up in Hokkaido. Um, I've heard that anecdotally from people that, that say they use them. And so I don't know, you know, I've never seen that like in a, a peer reviewed paper. I, um, I, most of, most of it, regardless, most of it is not coming from Japan. Um, most of it is imported. Same thing. I mean, you think about it, Japan's a really small island. Um, there's not a lot of room for agriculture. It's maybe not the most ideal conditions for large production. And so um, even barley, most grain is, is, is basically ex is, is imported in Japan. Um, and then for the higher quality stuff that we like to work with, it's distilled there, but there's, you know, most of that stuff is coming in and then it's being produced there. I see. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is interesting that if you want to know about scotch or American whiskey, like they'll tell you every single thing that you want to know. And yeah. That is less the case in, in Japan. But, any but I, yeah, but I think it kind of made, I mean, I was talking to, cause we talk to a lot of people that are importers and, and, you know, we, we, we I mean, we, we we're, we're all total nerds here and we're all like super into the stuff. So we, we talk about it all the time. Um, and I, I think the, the case that I've heard made, and it kind of makes sense is, um, you know, if you look at Scotland in particular, and even like, even like Kentucky and, and the U S like there is this, this big, um, you know, there's a lot of sharing and there's a lot of, uh, like 
both like industry wise, like knowledge wise, it's like a lot of um, trading barrels and like, you know, it, it's like a, it's less of a, I don't want to say zero sum, but um, just like there's a history of those people collaborating and like, it's like, we use these barrels now we're going to sell them to you and you're going to give us this. And in Japan, I think, I don't know if that's always been the case. I think it's been a little bit more secretive because for the longest time you had Nika and Suntory um, and that was pretty much it. And they were really dominant and um, you know, there wasn't a need to share. And that's changing, but that is changing though. I, I think you, you know, we just got a, a bottling last year from Mars and Chichibu where they did like a multi exchange. Um, you're, you're seeing a lot of that change with some of the smaller distilleries that are coming up. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot changing in Japan right now, but I, I think, it, I think it's, it just goes to like how small the industry was and, and how kind of people, were, I think we're just trying to keep everything just in-house and secretive. Yeah, that makes sense. It reminds me of a joke that I was told by uh, a Woodford uh, Reserve representative who was joking with some Scottish people who was using their barrels. Uh, and she said something to the effect of, thanks for using our leftover barrels. And and the Scottish guy said, thanks for washing them out for us. <laughs> yeah, it's true, though. It's like it's it's very uh, it's I, I think it, it's very non-zero. I mean, it's very it's very non-zero sum, I think, in most places. And I think in Japan, it's always been, you know, there just wasn't a, a huge industry. And, you know, it was pretty much those two for a long time. And now, you know, with with Ichiro Kuda and Chichibu and now Akeshi and, you know, it's definitely changing over there. It's, it's super exciting. Yeah. And yeah, there, there are sort of conflicting customs for uh, making whiskey in different parts of the country, like with the bourbon scotch thing. Like in scotch, they tend to use use barrels from wherever. And in for bourbon, you have to use new barrels and you have to try them. Right. And then, you know, they're just until, I think, until like May last year, yes, I think in May last year. I mean, there, you know, it's there, there, there still are, but like, I mean, there was no codified laws in Japan, which was problematic because, you know, you'd see people coming in and basically importing distillate from other places, slapping a, a kanji label on it and calling it Japanese whiskey. And, and that's not great. Um, so, but yeah, so I think, I mean, I think it's anyways, but I'm digressing, but yeah, I think, I think that's kind of the reason why, and, and it is changing. Podcasts are all for digressing, so don't worry. Yeah. About um, so what are some recent um, pairings that you did and can you talk us through them? Yeah, sir. Um, so right now, let's see, we're doing something. I can tell you my favorite. We're not, we're not doing it now, but like kind of like the one that got us onto it was we were tracing. Um, it was a single malt of Scotland Cal Isla bottling and sherry butt the tenure um and it was just like it's funny they were working on a dish out there and they were kind of like experimenting with some stuff um and they're playing with smoked jellyfish or smoked tomato with jellyfish on it and then i think it was wagyu it was wagyu ham or wagyu lardo on it and so it was just this really rich salty smoky dish with like herbal notes to it um and then and here in the whiskey lounge while they're doing that I was tasting that super smoky Calila. It was like, it was like, a, I think it was like, I think I have a bottle here still, but it's like 67% alcohol. It's like, it's like, Whoa. Um, and they brought it in. They're like, Hey, you want to try this? And I was like, yeah, like, why don't we try it with this totally peaty whiskey? Like kind of like, I mean, wait, I was like, I was like, might be kind of fun. And it was like the best, it was better than the wine pairing. And so we're like, Ooh, like the, the peat with the smoke on the tomato was amazing. Um, the salinity of the, the salinity with the the jellyfish was amazing. Um, that sherry butt was super rich. Like it was like it, 
I mean, it tasted like first use, like small sherry barrel. Like it was like toffee and like that was just like, I was like, oof, like that is like really fun and sweet and the tomato. And so it just worked in ways that you wouldn't, you can't, you can't find those flavors. And I mean, maybe you can, I, I haven't found those flavors in wine yet. And I, I drink a lot of wine, um, but you just can't find those flavors in wine. So it, it was very different from like the rosé that we were pairing with the dish that was aged. Um, it was, what was it? Chateau Preto, Vesprit 2018. 100% more bad rosé, super savory aged rosé. Um, but it worked in totally different ways. And and I frankly, I like the whiskey one better. Um, so that was, I mean, that was the one that kind of got us into it. Um, we just put on, let's see, one that we don't ever change. We do Ichiro's Molten Grain. And actually I can grab, I don't know if it's helpful, but I can grab the bottles that are right behind me. But um, yeah, we do Ichiro's Molten Grain with our caviar. Um, which we don't do our caviar. Our caviar set's pretty unique. Um, it's Kaluga hybrid caviar that is going to be on a bed of um, tofu, buckwheat, and like a little touch of wasabi. Um, so it's, it's a combination of like, you know, caviar, like iodine salinity. Um, and then you have um, this like pretty rich kind of, almost kind of confectionery, like creamy, grainy, almost kind of malty thing at the bottom. Um, there's a little spice to it, but wasabi is like not super spicy. You just get like a hint of that flavor. And so with Ichiro's Molten Grain, um, they don't, well, going back to secrecy, they don't tell you what's in there, but it tastes like there's a good amount of North American rye in there. Um, and then maybe some Irish whiskey or something of that like, which has like that creaminess to it. And so you do that with it, it's great. It pops with the caviar because it's pretty mineral. And then it really brings out like the texture of that tofu, that buckwheat, really brings out the buckwheat flavor. And then it doesn't make it, doesn't like really, I guess you could say it amplifies. It kind of amplifies that tofu flavor without bringing out the spice and just like, kind of like, just like, it just like resonates a little stronger. And so it's something where like, it's like really makes certain parts of the dish a little bit louder um, in a fun way. And so that one we love. Um, where does the Wagyu come into that caviar dish? It's a, the Wagyu garum. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And that one just gives it like a little bit of a, it just kind of balances out because like, if you think about those ingredients, like it's, it's pretty like, just at least my, my my opinion like it's pretty uh it's it's all like on like sort of the same spectrum and the wagyu garum like gives it like that like umami pop that you wouldn't get from even the caviar um let's see for what's fun right now we just put on a dish that we we're playing with and it is it's like super hard to pair on the wine side and the, the whiskey was way easier um it is Wagyu bone marrow. We're doing like a pomegranate vinaigrette, which is not, it, it's, it's just, you know, you can kind of imagine what it's like. It's like it's a combination of like pomegranate sweetness and then acidity. Um, and then we're doing endive on there, dehydrated kale. Um, and so it's, it's just like, it's a pretty savory dish from the marrow, but you have all these like herbal notes and sweetness from the pomegranate. And so we're doing, actually I'll grab this one because it's kind of, it's kind of fun. Uh, this guy, which is Mars. We bought chestnut cask, um, which is a big bottle. It's like bigger in my head. Um, so this is going to be a limited bottling from Mars. Um, so they make a lot of the Ewa blended in general. It's it's great. It's really well made blended whiskey. It's um, you know smooth. It's easy drinking. It's complex. Um, every year they'll do a couple of different kind of like I always like describe them as like R&D bottling where they'll take that same base whiskey and do a six month cast finish. Some years it's, uh, they'll do it like in like Pedro Jimenez barrel. Some years they'll do it in um, like Pinot Noir straw barrel. Some years they'll do like Napa red wine casks. 
So this one's chestnut barrels, which is kind of cool because as we were talking about, um, most of most cast finishes, it's reused stuff. It's like recycled um, or used for something else, then used for the whiskey. This one, um, the only reason I know this is like the guys from Mars came in. And I was talking to them about it. Um, this one, it, they're specifically getting Japanese chestnut trees and harvesting for this. And so it's it's first use, it's all purpose. And it tastes like, I mean, it has like the richness of like of like like first use, like small cherry barrels. Um, like it's like the same kind of dark toffee confectionery, like almost like stewed fruit kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Then you get this like kind of like almost earthy chestnut pop to it. And so it's something where it's, still that base whiskey, which is smooth and easy drinking. And it goes basically like the sweetness, the richness goes really well with, um, it like really kind of counteracts the bitterness of the endive. Um, and just, it works really well with everything, the flavor, the richness, um, that nuttiness is really fun with the bone marrow. So yeah, I mean, this is something that we really like, we just put it on and everyone's been, as, as far as I've talked to you, as far as guests, they've all, that's been their favorite, their favorite lately. Um, I'm trying to think what else. We tried some a couple nights ago. Somebody wanted a pairing, and we did Yamazaki 18 Mizunara cask with chocolate chip Wagyu cookies. That was pretty good. What what kind of cask? Uh, it was Yamazaki 18 Mizunara cask. Um, very nice, very nice whiskey. But they did a they did a full whiskey pairing, and at the end they're like, "What would you pair with that if we order some?" And it was Wagyu Lardo hot chocolate chip cookies, which Whoa. I think that was probably the best pairing we've done. And one more time, what did you say the cask was? Uh, Mizunara. Mizunara is a. Uh, yeah. Um, are, you, are you familiar with Mizunara? I am not. No. It's actually a cool story. Um, so, Mizunara is Japanese oak. It's also colloquially called Mongolian oak, which is the bigger species. Um, and you'll find it in a lot of places um, in places like Mongolia, and you have to find it in China, um, all over sort of South and East and Central Asia, going probably all the way up to Russia and the Caucasus. Um, but it is in Japan, it's a little different. It's like almost like bottlenecked out. It's like been bottlenecked. And so it's like a slightly different that people say it's like a slightly different expression or slightly different species relative to what you find on the mainland. Mm-hmm. So uh, historically, it was a terrible wood to use. It's super porous and it like bend, it like it will bend too much. And so it's really hard to make barrels out of it because they'll leak and they'll warp. Um, and it has a very distinct flavor. And so they actually, they wouldn't use it traditionally, even when they started making whiskey, when whiskey was kind of getting popular in like the early 1900s. Then post-World War II, no one was sending them barrels, or during World War II as well. But um, in that area, in that time, Scotland didn't want to send barrels over to Japan. The U.S. wasn't doing it. Um, and so they didn't have any wood. And so they were like, well, all we have is this stuff that is porous and doesn't work really well and has this weird flavor. So they had to learn how to use it. And over since then, they basically they did and so they started using Mizunara. Um, and then as it they kind of figured it out, they they kind of realized it made this crazy, crazy like those unique flavors, like they kind of got them dialed in and it has this like very distinct like sage, saffron, like incense, like like a lot of like a lot of the way the wood flavor is described is like how you describe like good burgundy or something like that. It's like this like ethereal, like spice incense like quality. Um, and it's it's awesome and there's nothing quite like it. Um, and so Anyways, with the boom of Japanese whiskey, um, everyone really like everyone really wanted Mizunara because you can't really get it anywhere else besides those locations in Japan. And so the demand went crazy for Japanese whiskey. The demand for Mizunara went crazy um, to the point where you, you just can't get it anymore. Um, I think the like the maturation the maturation cycle is like two hundred years um, to be able to harvest it. And at this point now, it's all been harvested for the most part. And 
the majority of it's locked up in national parks and you can't touch it. Um, and so, yeah, the, I, I think like the empty barrels, like the, if you're buying an empty barrel, an empty first use barrel to use it, it's like, I think it's like $10,000 minimum. And so it's, it's, it's just like, it's, it's something where it's a unique flavor and it, there's nothing quite like it and you just can't find it anymore. So. But you have it because you are the beverage director at Gozen. We have it. It's really yummy. <laughs> um, yeah. If you can find it and it's, it's, it's affordable, it's, I highly recommend Mizunark ask. Or, you know, go to Gozu and order some. Yeah. Sell a kidney to pay for it or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't recommend that. Make, make, make good choices, but. Yes, good. that's a better advice. Make good choices. Um, but you also do tea pairings, and that is how we met when I was writing about tea. Yeah. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some tea pairings. Yeah, sure. Um, let's see. Yeah, that one's interesting. So it's, it's. It's, I don't really know where to begin, but yeah, I mean, like we, we got, so I got really into, I mean, I was never a huge tea guy, um, but then at Cren, we did some tea pairings and we worked with um, a guy named Peter over at Song Tea. Um, and he like really opened my eyes, like how unique some of the stuff was. And he's like, I mean, Peter is the man. And you, you wouldn't probably know him if you don't live in San Francisco, but he runs a little, um, a little tea retail and importing business um, called Song Tea. Um, but yeah, I mean, the key started basically, you know, I, I never really thought about tea as something similar to wine, but, um, you know, working with him and working with some of the stuff at Atelier Cren, I was like, wow, this looks very similar to wine. And there's just like a different uh, grapes and different um, locations. You find the same thing in, in, in tea vineyards or tea. I, I, plantations. I They're called plantations. Yeah, um, and so it's there's different cultivars, there's different sites, there's different elevations, and they all have a, a big effect. And then just like with wine um, and grapes, how you roast it and how you treat it, and you know what are your yields and all these things play in. So the the similarities are really very similar to wine. And then what's fun on the tea pairing side is, unlike wine, you know with wine you can decant stuff, you can choose when to open it, um, you can choose to a degree. I mean, like, I guess there's like a range of serving temperatures that you could sort of control, but it's pretty set, right? Like you don't want to, you don't want to serve something. You don't want to serve your burgundy at like 90 degrees. That'd be not good. Uh, <laughs> and you don't want to serve your, you know, if you're drinking a really good burgundy, you want to serve it at 33 degrees because it's just like Fahrenheit because that's going to sort of ruin the experience. And so the big thing that's fun of tea is you as the person making it um, can sort of in a good way, manipulate it to bring out the qualities that you want to. And so like, for, like it's actually like right now I'm drinking like a cold brewed green tea. It's not whiskey, it's green tea. Probably looks like whiskey, but it's green tea. Um, and so like, that's something where like we cold brew it um, and depending on the cultivar, which can be super different. Um, it's actually kind of tricky to figure out cause like you, you green, you brew one thing one way and you brew another one that way and it comes out too bitter. Um, but we can sort of get like sort of the text like the, some of the concentration of it that you would have to oversteep it to get without getting the bitterness. Um, and the same thing applies to heat, like for the heat and such, like we'll do, like right now we're doing one from Taiwan called Non Too Dark. Um, and if you do first use, concentrate it, brew it super hot. Um, so basically oversaturate the, the tea leaves in there to the water ratio, brew it really fast, really hot. You get this thing, it's almost like a, it's almost like a concentrated shot of like liquor in terms of like its intensity. Um, but you're doing it basically, a, you're basically trying to balance like time, heat, uh, temperature. And so our time temperature and, uh, 
uh, a mass, or like the amount you're using. Right. Um, and so with that, you can you can really get some, you can really bring out certain things while minimizing others. And so that one you get like a lot of the concentration, you get super high toned aromatics. You can see it in the color, it's almost like, like ink black. Um, and you can reduce the bitterness. And so it's fun, like something like that, like depending on what the dish is, we can get it to the point where like, it has like enough astringency where it like will cut, like we were doing it with, um, we were originally doing it with, oh my goodness, what was it? We just changed it to the abalone. Um, well, anyway, we, we were doing it something where like, we're like, we want a little bit of bitterness. And like the wine pairing that same dish, we're doing like, um, we're doing like 2002, um, 2002 Santonet, so like an aged burgundy. Um, and like, we can get like something kind of similar where there's like a little bit of like earthiness to it, which goes really well with it. We can get like a little bit of stringency that'll cut through like almost the same way like Canon does but it's like not too much. And so it's, it's just like, it's, it's like, that's the fun thing for me is like, you can really sort of, you can dial it in, in ways that you wouldn't ever want to do with wine or you couldn't do with wine. Cause if, you know, you like the wine's like frozen in time. It's like, you just want to open the cork and express what it is with the tea, because like you actively have to brew it, you have control on the brewing and you can really get, kind of turn some dials and, and, and kind of turn some things up and down. Yeah, and as I understand it, some tea, you want the water to be almost boiling, but not boiling. And then for others, you want it to be quite a bit cooler than that. And totally, yeah. there's, there's cold brew now, too, that people do, too. So, And all yeah, of yeah. that is going to ex is extract different elements. And the amount of time that you use, obviously, also makes it stronger or weaker, more bitter, less bitter. So that's that's a lot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I mean and actually, the, the this one, the, so Hong Wadan, this one's going to be from Fijian. So, like, this is a good example. So... You know, when you cold brew it, so you if you if you do it hot, um, you want it to be like 180. Like it's like it, it for a tea it brews like you want to brew it pretty cold and you want to brew it pretty fast. And if you don't do that, it comes out. It can get like almost like this like kind of like asparagusy. If you if you oversteep it even like a little bit and a little, or a little too hot, it brings out these volatile compounds and this bitterness that it can be like kind of unpleasant. Um, on the cold brewing, like you know you 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 want to cold brew for like eight hours. And even then though, if you start going longer than that, you'll really quickly, it sort of compounds into some, some flavor that you don't want. Like the sweet spots, eight hours for cold brewing. And it's like maybe, maybe 90 seconds for the, the hot brewing. So, and it comes out um, in very different ways, but you can sort of see, you can sort of see like the, the point where like the flavors from both hot and like, you can kind of see like where the apex is that, you can see like the sweet spot for both. Um, it just comes out in very different ways and different sides of, of the temperature. So do you have like a bunch of alarms on your phone to tell you when to <laughs> stop stuff? Cause some stuff you brew for like two, three minutes and other stuff you brew for eight hours. So how do you, how do you keep track of all of that? You must have a lot going on all at once. Um, yeah, we got, I mean, we're pretty, we run a pretty basic system back here, but yeah, we're just on top of it. Um, we, yeah, we have a, we have a couple of timers back here. Um, we have organized it where it's really compressed. So like we, like, this is like this, like what you're looking at behind me, it's, 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 this is like our, I mean, it's a, it's a pretty small space, but we run, I run the tea pairings out of here. I'll run whiskey flights out of here. I'll run the whiskey pairings. And so basically like at any given time, I'm just like hanging out back here. Just like, it's almost like bartending space, like moving stuff around and just make like dialing stuff in. And we'll taste, I mean, we, we taste everything before it goes out too. Like even like the, the teas. Um, and if it's not, if we don't think it's good, or we think if we think if we oversteep it or mismeasured it, we'll we'll basically just re redo it. Um, yeah, so it's it's just kind of like 
being very focused, <laughs> being very focused and efficient. That's, that's, that's how we do it. How, how long is your service every night? Um, so we say like two and a half hours is, is kind of, yeah. I mean, I would say it's like about, it's about a two hour experience. Um, it can run a little longer. We do, two, we do two turns. So first seating starts at five o'clock. Um, and we'll basically seat from five to five thirty, and kind of, uh, sort of, you know, separate out a little bit. And then the second seating, you just starts eight to eight thirty, um, same window. And, you know, people go at different time. People go sort of at different paces. Um, Usually, I think like two hours is like the sweet spot. Um, probably two and a half hours if you want to, you know, add on stuff. We, we have supplemental dishes that we add on, and we have, you know, for the parents and stuff. If you want to listen to me ramble on, that adds some time too. But um, yeah, so about two and a half hours, I'd say. I'm guessing that a lot of people want to hear you ramble. Is that uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, if they do, I'm flattered. But yeah, um, but yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, I would say like for like a fine dining restaurant, it's a pretty average time uh, as far as yeah. like the dinner service. We're about out of time. And, uh, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And I hope we get to do it more when I write yeah. more about tea and whiskey and wine, etc. All good stuff, uh, yeah. Really nice to meet you, Jordan Abraham. And uh, as I said, I hope we do it again soon. Yeah, great meeting you too. Um, enjoyed it. So reach out anytime. I will. Thanks a lot.